0: human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians.
1: Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the Project Censored Show, we look back at the past year at the State of the Free Press, and we'll look at the most underreported and censored stories of this last year. Stay with us for an hour on State of the Free Press welcome to the project censored show on pacifica radio i'm your host mickey huff on today's program for the hour we talk about project censored's state of the free press 2022 our annual report on unreported stories underreported stories and censored news stories is out from the censored press Today on the program, we are joined by the Associate Director of Project Censored, Andy Lee Roth. He is co-editor of State of the Free Press 2022, along with me. Andy is the Associate Director of Project Censored, where he coordinates Project Censored's campus affiliates program, along with Steve Masick. Andy has contributed to the State of the Free Press 2022, our most recent yearbook, and our other guest today is none other than Steve Masick. Steve Masick is a professor of communication and chair of the Department of Communication and Media Studies at North Central College outside of Chicago, Illinois. He is coordinator, along with Andy Lee Roth, of the Project's Campus Affiliates Program and contributor to State of the Free Press 2022. Again, Project Censored's most recent annual publication. Andy Lee Roth, let's start with you and just give a brief overview. This is Project Censored's 45th year. Started by Carl Jensen at Sonoma State University. And we are now on our own imprint called The Censored Press, a partnership with our longtime publishers, Seven Stories Press. But, Andy Lee Roth, why don't you talk a little bit again about where Project Censored is in this 45 year trajectory? And what do we mean when we talk about media censorship?
0: Well, since the project's founding in 1976, the project, and especially the students who work on the project, have been all about identifying stories, important news stories, that go underreported or are excluded altogether from the news agenda of the big establishment corporate media news outlets. So you could think of each year's story list, the top 25 stories that first produced by Carl Jensen and students of his at Sonoma State University in California in 1976 as an ongoing analysis of the third rail topics, the no-go topics, the lacuna, the gaps in what corporate news media consider to be important. So the work is simultaneously a critique of the shortcomings of the corporate news media, and also an affirmation of the fundamental importance to our lives, our communities, and our democracy, the fundamental importance of truly independent news reporting. Without intrepid independent journalists and the independent news outlets that publish and broadcast their work, the stories in each year's top 25 list, we're now talking about uh, several thousand such stories over the course of 45 years, Those stories would be either unknown or only partially in the awareness of the public. And since we know that any kind of robust democracy depends on an informed and engaged public, the questions of what kinds of stories are deemed newsworthy or not, how definitions of who and what are newsworthy shape uh, our awareness These questions are fundamental to who we are, what kind of communities we live in, and the extent to which our democracy is a strong or a fragile one.
1: And Andy Lee Roth, of course, what we do at Project Censored is academic and orientation, critical media literacy, education. You're a trained sociologist. And of course, the assignments that go on in these kinds of of courses really lend themselves well to look at news media coverage of important issues. And Steve Masick, a scholar in communications, obviously, that work comes through there clearly as well. Steve Masick, let's bring you in here. You and Andy Lee Roth wrote a piece in Truthout not long ago corporate media harms not only through omission, but also by distortion. And of course, both you and Andy co-authored and co-compiled the first chapter of the Project Censored book, which goes over in detail these top underreported and censored stories. Could you talk to us a little bit about how the effects of underreporting or misreporting, you all argue, may ultimately be more harmful than non?
2: Certainly, and first of all, thanks, Mickey, for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure to be on here with you and Andy. And it was a real pleasure for me to work with my students at North Central College on some of the validated independent news stories that made it ultimately into this year's top 25 list. And also, you know, I worked with some students on another chapter of the book that I think we're going to talk about later. Let me, though, circle back to your question about the harms of Underreporting or distortion. The article that Andy and I wrote for Truthout was adapted from the introduction to the top 25 chapter in State of the Free Press 2022. And in that chapter, we try to answer some of the critics of Project Censored, who over the years have said, well, some of the stories that appear on the annual list that Project Censored compiles of underreported stories have gotten gotten some attention from the mainstream corporate media. They may have had an an occasional report or even a cover story in the New York Times or, or the Washington Post. And what we tried to point out in this introduction is that we're not claiming that the stories that are on this list have been completely suppressed either by the government or by powerful news organizations. Although, as I think we're gonna discuss later in the hour, there have been some stories that are on the top 25 that have gotten zero coverage in the commercial news media in this country, although they may have received some coverage in the commercial news media in other countries. But what we are saying is that oftentimes, important facts or perspectives have been omitted from the corporate coverage of stories. These one-off stories have not been followed up or updated by sustained coverage, tend to disappear very quickly when they're deserving of more sustained and intensive investigation from the news media. And the only people who are doing sustained and deep investigations into these topics are the independent and alternative news media. And then we also note something which, you know, as we've noted over the years, that oftentimes when the corporate news media do dine to uh, pay attention to particular topics that we view as underreported, they often will label the coverage as opinion. They'll present it as a matter of opinion, as controversial, whereas they would not do the same with stories that get sustained and repeated coverage, which may in fact be opinion. So,
1: Steve Masick, well, no, absolutely. I mean, it, so, you know, when we talk about censorship, again, I'm, I'm very glad that we're starting our conversation with some of these clarifications, definitions, and uh, Andy, you know, moments ago um, – <clears throat> you know, you're talking about 45 years of this kind of process developing with the project censored curriculum and critical media literacy. Um, but we, we, and of course, times have changed technologically, right? But censorship is still a, a very serious problem in a place like the United States, despite the first amendment. And it, it is the case that, uh, you all outline in the top stories and in, in the first chapter of the book, by the way, I want to remind listeners that all of these stories are available online for free at project Uh, but Andy, the project itself is literally kind of a history of the progression of, of censorship. And uh, we just heard Steve talking about omissions and distortions. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the stories that fit into these kinds of different categories that you find as as stellar examples that are affiliates, professors, and students research this year that made it onto the ballot and the judges found them significant enough that they ended up online and they ended up in the book.
0: I'll be glad to start off with what is actually our top story from the 2020-2021 news cycle. The story being prescription drug costs are set to become a leading cause of death for elderly Americans. And I'm going to say a bit about this story and then highlight for us now how this is an example of what Steve was referring to as a story that's achieved partial coverage in the corporate press, where partial could mean both incomplete but also perhaps slanted, so both senses of that term partial. This story was reported by Kenny Stansel for Common Dreams, and it's based on a massive study that was conducted by the West Health Policy Center, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan policy research group. And their finding was, in this 2020 study, was that over the next decade, approximately 1.1 million seniors in the United States who participate in the federal government's Medicare program could die prematurely because they will not be able to afford the high prices of their prescription medications. According to the report, this is This is a form of what's known in the industry as cost-related non-adherence. So non-adherence, meaning when your doctor tells you, you need to take all of this 10-day cycle of the prescription, even if the symptoms for your cold go away before then. Medical professionals are always worried about non-adherence to prescription advice Cost-related non-adherence is not the social version, but the economic version. And as the West Health Policy Center found, cost-related non-adherence was scheduled to become a leading cause of death in the U.S. ahead of some of the most common deadly diseases, including diabetes, influenza, pneumonia, and kidney disease. Now, there are two other aspects of this story I would want to emphasize in this context. One is... That the Common Dreams report on this study emphasized not only the problems, but also how policy changes could lower the cost of prescription drugs and curb the power of big pharma. One of the recommendations from the West Health study was not only to limit the extent to which big pharma could increase drug prices in any given time period, but also empowering Medicare to negotiate directly with drug companies on behalf of patients, Um, something that would not only prevent as many as 93,000 deaths per year, but could also reduce Medicare spending by more than $475 billion by the year 2030. So there's a solutions aspect to the independent news reporting on this topic that is altogether absent from most of the corporate news coverage that we identified in the course of vetting this story about that corporate news coverage. This is, as I said, an example of a story that's achieved partial coverage. We did find as we researched this story, That there was, of course, a great deal of coverage in the establishment press about rising drug prices. This was topicalized, especially in the election campaign, the 2020 presidential election campaign, where rising drug prices was a concern both in the Democratic and Republican conventions. But what we found as we dug into this story was that the West Health study had been entirely ignored. So there has not been a total blockade on establishment news coverage of the high cost of prescription drugs, but a detailed, well-researched, empirically grounded, in other words, evidence-based study like the West Health study we found had been entirely ignored by the corporate news media in dealing with the topic of rising drug costs, which means also not only the the threats, the cost in terms of human lives and economic expenditures, but also the potential solutions to those stories have not received the kind of coverage that they probably deserve, that the public needs to know in order to be informed and engaged.
1: And Andy Lee Roth, that's a pretty significant example of how the corporate press will talk about specific subjects, but they do it in such a partial way or frame the information in a way that key crucial Factual details are left on the cutting room floor. They don't see the light of day. Back to what you and Steve Masick were talking about just moments ago, it's really important to clarify these definitions. Obviously, at Project Censored, there's no way to cover the story that was never published. I don't mean to be cartoonish about it, but some of the criticisms that are leveled are, of course, this story was published. You're you're citing it in your book. But the problem, as you all lay out really well, is that the corporate media in serial fashion tend to omit key details and distort key information. They do it on a regular basis, and that really contributes to an ill-informed public, and then that takes us round full circle to the importance of critical media literacy. We're going to continue talking about critical media literacy, Project Censored, the new book, State of the Free Press 2022, with our guests today, Steve Masick and Andy Lee Roth. We'll continue after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we are delighted to welcome the Associate Director of Project Censored, Andy Lee Roth. He is the co-editor of 12 editions of The Project Censored Yearbook. He's coordinator of Project Censored's Campus Affiliates Program, a news media research network of several hundred students and faculty at two dozen colleges and universities, across North America. We are also joined by Steve Masick. Uh, Steve Masick is Professor of Communications and Chair of the Department of Communication and Media Studies at North Central College. He is also, uh, uh, the uh, he also helps co-manage uh, the Affiliates Program with Andy Lee Roth, and Steve Masick is uh, co-author of Chapter One, co-editor of Chapter One in the book on the Top 25 Stories with Andy Lee Roth. Later in the program, Steve will talk about Uh, what's happened to previous censored stories in a chapter on deja vu. But right now, we want to go back to um, the critical media literacy angle uh, of why calling out these underreported stories is important for multiple reasons, right? How stories are are censored or underreported and why critical media literacy education attunes readers or attunes students to begin paying more attention to a broader field of media. Steve Masick. Before the break, uh, Andy Lee Roth was telling us about the top censored, underreported story of the year and related it to the previous concepts. It's your turn. Let's go to you and let's hear about another story and, and your analysis.
2: I'd like to talk about story number two. Journalists investigating financial crimes are threatened by global elites. I think this is a good example of a story that has been mostly uncovered or ignored by the corporate media in the United States, although it has received some media attention outside the United States. So your listeners are probably aware that investigative journalists around the world, teams of investigative journalists have investigated a number of stories related to financial crimes and corruption, stories about some of the world's leading banks like Deutsche Bank um, and others uh, laundering money for organized crime, but also for big billionaires who are trying to park their money in off offshore tax havens. These are stories like the Panama Papers, the recently released Pandora Papers, the FinCEN Files in 2020. And the Foreign Policy Center, which is an NGO based in the UK, together with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, with support from the Justice for Journalists Foundation, conducted a survey of the pressures being faced by the investigative journalists who are looking into these stories about financial misdeeds and corruption and financial crimes. They surveyed 63 investigative journalists from 41 studies, and they found that 71% of them have experienced threats and or harassments while doing these investigations, with a significant portion of reporters, 73 percent, facing legal threats, usually in the form of lawsuits, nuisance lawsuits, what are sometimes called slap lawsuits, strategic lawsuits against public participation. They're nuisance, frivolous lawsuits that that have no real chance of success, but simply tie up the defendants in the lawsuits and, and incur for them huge legal costs. That's a pretty stunning finding that 71% of the investigative journalists looking into financial crimes are facing threats and harassment. And probably more sobering facts are that, according to this survey, 81% of the respondents encountered verbal threats, 79% were the subjects of trolling on social media. As I said before, civil legal cases especially the use of cease and desist letters, surveillance, slap suits were quite common. The majority of respondents encountered them. And then there were sort of a small number, but a significant number, of journalists who have been looking into this kind of financial misdeeds, who have been the subject of actual violence, up to and including assassination. So the case of a journalist who was involved in doing an investigation into financial crimes who was assassinated that some of your listeners may have heard of is Daphne Karuna Galizia, a Maltese journalist who was looking into financial corruption that involved the government of Malta and some of the major financial Financial institutions in Malta. She was murdered by a car bomb in October of 2017. There was a Slovakian journalist who was looking into financial corruption among a group of businessmen in Slovakia who was also murdered. And in fact, some 30 journalists in recent years investigating financial crimes from Brazil, Russia, India, Ukraine, Mexico, and other countries have been murdered since 2017 17. That, of course, has a deterrent and chilling effect. Now, much more common, though, has been this practice of harassing journalists looking into financial corruption or financial crimes using nuisance lawsuits or SLAPS lawsuits. And it's no accident that the NGO that looked into this is located in the UK because, as one observer noted, the UK's court system, UK, unlike a lot of countries, including the United States, does not have any anti anti-slap laws that provide protection for people who are targeted by these kinds of nuisance lawsuits. And as a result, as one observer pointed out, the UK's court system has made the UK into the censorship capital of the democratic world, because it's so common for journalists operating in the UK, or even that have some kind of dealings with the UK to encounter these kinds of slap lawsuits in inside the UK. The most significant one, and then I'll, and then I'll shut up. Involves a financial journalist who was, I think, a longtime reporter for the London based Financial Times, financial reporter Catherine Belton, who was the author of a really interesting 2020 book called Putin's People How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took On the West, which kind of details how all of these people who were close to Vladimir Putin became billionaires, the process by which they became billionaires in response to the publication of this book, Almost every single one of those billionaire Russian oligarchs brought libel suits and other kinds of nuisance lawsuits against Belton. She was just bombarded by one lawsuit after another, including Roman Abramovich, who, if anybody out there is a soccer fan, is the owner of uh, the Chelsea Football Club in London. He brought a libel suit against Belton for mentioning his name in the context of financial corruption in this book. Uh, so it is a significant. Pro- And as we point out in the book, the London Guardian has published a number of stories about this. There have been a number of other international news organizations and overseas news organizations who have reported on it. Not a single domestic American news organization has even mentioned it. There was a single story that ran on The Voice of America, which is an American-operated radio network, but is targeted at people outside of the United States.
1: The story that you were just talking about was in The Guardian and also International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, but no coverage here in the U.S. And, you know, Andy Lee Roth, that occasions us to possibly go back to one of the themes here that Steve Masick just brought up was the challenges that reporters face to tell the public about these really crucial and, and important issues. And in the introduction of State of the Free Press 2022, you outline the challenges and threats that many are now facing. And, and they come in many different guises from the, the more structural and systemic to the, the very literal, like Steve Masick was just talking about. Whether we talk about media deregulation, online censorship and deplatforming we also are dealing with very physical threats that have a chilling impact on journalists and and these are not imagined these are very specific and real issues that have contributed in many ways to the united states ranking 45th on the press freedom index internationally not something to crow about it's certainly not a we're number one moment in that regard andy lee
0: and for people who doubt that oh you know Journalists, it's just journalists in other countries who are at risk. We're a kind of American exceptionalism. After all, in the United States, we have the First Amendment, which protects journalists and news outlets from government interference. A kind of sobering counterpoint to anyone who is articulating arguments along those lines is the work of the US Press Freedom Tracker, which people can find online. The Press Freedom Tracker is a database of so-called press freedom incidents, which is everything from arrests of journalists and the seizure of their equipment to journalists being questioned by law enforcement authorities of one kind or another, all the way up to and including physical attacks. And the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker documents all these thoroughly and then lists them. So we know, in terms of a quick summary of 2021, U.S. Press Freedom Tracker has tracked 141 assaults of journalists. These are all figures of journalists in the course of doing their jobs as journalists. So 141 assaults, 57 arrests or detainments, 20 journalists or news organizations have been subpoenaed, and there are 36 incidents of journalists having equipment damaged in the course of reporting so the work of journalism in a covid era is already difficult but as the u.s press freedom tracker documents in vivid detail and for each of these incidents the press freedom tracker um, has the kind of the sourcing for how they know that this happened the evidence this uh, that the report is a factual report These all indicate how increasingly it's dangerous for journalists to do their job. If we go back to 2020, the two most dangerous beats for U.S.-based journalists were covering election campaign events where journalists were as likely to be assaulted by members of the public as they were by law enforcement, and then, of course, uh, public protests uh, organized under the auspices of Black Lives Matter, where journalists were extraordinarily likely to be assaulted, arrested, have their equipment detained by law enforcement officials. So it's coming from both sides for journalists who are covering these important but contentious public events. At some of them, it's coming from the state in the form of, of um, local and state police and law enforcement officers. In other cases, it's coming from members of the public who have been ramped up by rhetoric that is, of course, promoted online and through social media and in some cases through news outlets, encouraging skepticism of the press.
1: Andy Lee Roth, all that information can be found at pressfreedomtracker.us. That's the website that details all of the things that you were just saying. And in State of the Free Press 2022... We document that from May of 2020 to May of 2021, the post-George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests, U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, again, to to just add to the main gist of the message here that this is a problem in the United States, we saw um, the Press Freedom Tracker documented 415 assaults on journalists, 153 arrests, 105 cases of damage inflicted upon equipment, and more than 85 percent— Uh, of this kind of, of, of violence toward media workers were actually perpetrated by law enforcement. It's really important that when you make claims like that anywhere, (laughs) it's important that it's well-documented, and of course, for years, Project Censored has prided itself on its sourcing and its documentation, and it's because of organizations like Press Freedom Tracker and others we're able to not only track these things along with them, but to amplify the importance of these messages that the corporate media just don't really cover. They don't really cover it in a lot of detail. So, you know, after this brief musical break, we're going to come back and talk about more examples of underreported and censored stories. We'll even talk about what's happened to some previous censored stories. We are delighted again today to bring to the program Associate Director of Project Censored, Andy Lee Roth, and also Professor Steve Masick, who works on the Project's affiliate program and works on the underreported stories with Andy Lee Roth each year. You can learn more about these stories and see them for free online at projectcensored.org. We'll continue our conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we're featuring Project Censored State of the Free Press 2022. That's the annual release of the top censored or underreported stories from the previous year. And we are honored today to have Andy Lee Roth with us. He is the associate director of Project Censored, co-editor of 12 editions of the yearbook he coordinates the project's campus affiliates program, a news media research network of several hundred students and faculty at two dozen colleges and universities across the United States, and his research and writing has been published in a variety of outlets including Index on Censorship in these Times, Yes Magazine, and many, many more. Uh, He has a Ph.D. in sociology from UCLA. We're also joined by Steve Masick. Steve Masick is a professor of communication and chair uh, of the Department of Communication and Media Studies at North Central College. He's author of Urban Nightmares, The Media, The Right, and The Moral Panic Over the City. And, of course, Steve Masick also works with Andy Lee Roth on the project's campus affiliate program. And they work to compile the top censored and underreported stories with students around the country each year year. So, let's talk a little bit more about some of those stories. And then we'll talk maybe about some of the student involvement and the importance of critical media literacy and then talk about a history of some of these censored and underreported stories. But Steve Masek, let's go to you. One of the other stories on the list, a recurring theme, is the way corporate media cover or don't cover issues around labor. So why don't you talk about that? There's some pretty significant activities going on around labor issues in the United States, but one might not know that if they only had a diet of corporate media.
2: Absolutely. And the number three story, on this year's top 25 list is is the historic wave of wildcat strikes for workers' rights. We're right now living through an unprecedented wave of unauthorized work stoppages. It's probably the largest wave of wildcat strikes in this country since the late 1960s and early 70s, which also had kind of a wave of wildcat strikes. And it's been prompted or is a response, direct response to COVID-19 and to the dangers that COVID-19 created for frontline workers. As you know, workers who were designated as frontline workers, that included nurses and teachers and meatpackers and delivery workers, since they were designated as frontline workers, they continued to have to work as many other people either went remote or were able to get enhanced unemployment benefits. And in response Many of those frontline workers engaged in spontaneous or at least unauthorized one- or two-day work stoppages to demand better wages, personal protective equipment, and other safety measures at their workplaces, and in some cases, in sympathy with the aims of the Black Lives Matter movement following the murder of George Floyd. Now, if you were consuming only the corporate media, you might have seen one or two scattered stories about these work stoppages. And various kinds of local media, where local media still exists, because local media is in the process of disappearing around the country, creating news deserts all over the country. In places where you still have local commercial media, you might have seen some isolated reporting about for example, the fact that, you know, here in the Chicago area where I live, employees at the Pete's coffee chain engaged in a one-day coordinated strike at every Pete's store around the Chicagoland area for a $15 minimum wage and for better safety conditions. A similar kind of coordinated one-day strike took place at the McDonald's restaurants all over Florida. You might have seen some isolated coverage about that, but what the corporate media kind of failed to do was to connect the dots and to report the wave of strikes as a wave and as a, a significant and historic wave. And the only kind of media that's actually been systematically covering this is labor media. And, and in particular, payday Report, which is a project of a guy by the name of Mike Elk. Payday Report has been systematically tracking every one of these wildcat strikes and work stoppages and has created a continuously updated COVID-19 strike wave interactive map. Last time we checked, there were more than 15,000 strikes recorded uh, on that map. And there had been really very little corporate media reporting about this. It's 1,500 strikes, right? 15, sorry, did I say 15,000? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And that's an awful lot.
2: Wishful thinking. 1,500, right.
1: 1,500. Exactly.
2: And that's from Payday Report. Payday Report, which is an online labor news website. Now, what's interesting is that belatedly the corporate press has started to pay attention to it literally in the past month or so, within the past six weeks, because they then started reporting on this wave of strikes, um, some of which were related to to Black Lives Matter and to to the George Floyd Floyd protests for racial justice, others about raising the minimum wage or better safety precautions under the rubric of striketober, which has now morphed into (laughs) Strikevember, right? because it continues and so you have seen some big commercial news media outlets like the network news new york times and washington post reporting on striketober but they were really late to the game because this wave of wildcat strikes began yet at the beginning of the pandemic and had actually already started before the pandemic began in some senses with street with teachers engaging in wildcat strikes.
1: So that occasions two things, Steve, and then back to Andy Lee Roth. One is, of course, literally pointing out the independent outlets that actually are covering these issues that gives the public an opportunity to learn about more places to get this kind of information. But it also occasions the opportunity to hit one more time on what you just said, Steve Masick, about the lag between the coverage. The independent alternative press is often on the front line of of these kind of cutting-edge stories that the corporate media don't cover, And maybe sometimes never even bother to get around to. They just languish in obscurity. And we'll get to that later when we get to deja vu. But also, the corporate media sometimes do eventually catch up. And they do begin covering it. But then that goes back to what we mentioned earlier about omissions versus distortions. And the way in which corporate media cover labor, they tend to cover it from a more pro-management perspective a capitalist perspective rather than a labor rights perspective.
2: When they cover it at all, I think an important point that um, Project Censored has made in the past is that they ignore labor, labor unions, labor organizations, issues of labor rights, unless organized labor is disrupting life for consumers or for big businesses. So the only time they get attention, the only time the labor movement gets attention, only time labor labor rights gets any attention is when there's a work stoppage or a strike and when it lasts long enough to kind of hurt the bottom line of a big corporation, like yes.
1: So corporations frame it as labor problems or labor disputes, not management not management hangups or shareholder reluctance and so on and so forth that kind of frame.
2: It's always framed as union demands, never you know bosses demands, right? it's never framed as the bosses demands on la- on workers. It's always union demands.
1: So, Andy Lee Roth, this also gives us an occasion to talk about this phenomenon the founder of Project Censored referred to as news inflation. Eventually here, we're going to merge our way back to, to media literacy Uh, education, because a lot of the things that we're talking about are why critical media literacy is important and so significant. So can you talk to us about this issue of news inflation? Yeah,
0: this is a term that Carl Jensen, the founder of the project, coined. And his simple uh, kind of assessment was, with news, we seem to have more and more of it, but it seems to be worth less and less. And in some ways, you could think about the entire effort of Project Censored as being an attempt to counter that, to say, Amidst all the kind of fluff reporting that gets covered in the book as news abuse, as junk food news reporting and related themes, there is out there, if you seek it out, if if a public members of the public seek it out, there's real significant trustworthy, transparently sourced, important news reporting being done by independent journalists and produced by independent news outlets like the ones we highlight in the top 25 list every year. And so you could think of the project as an effort to counter that dynamic of news inflation, right? The more and more, but worth less and less that, you know, Carl coined the term before we had 24-7 cable TV pundits offering hot takes on Twitter within minutes of a story breaking, et cetera, et cetera. And we talk at project censored about instead of having a 24-7 news cycle, that in some ways the project works on what you could think of as a 52-12 news cycle, that the entire effort of the annual story list is to take a look back and to assess from outside the kind of fray of the hot takes and the pundits and the 24-7 constantly moving ticker, what were the big stories that we ought to know more about that we haven't been well informed by the corporate media, but thank goodness independent journalists and independent news outlets are on the beat and 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 we just have to seek out that coverage.
1: So Andy Lee Roth, the project under nonprofit under the Media Freedom Foundation at the website projectcensored.org, all of these stories are available there for free. And also, it's not just the stories that are kind of the the vehicle so people can see media democracy in action, but the curriculum, the critical media literacy pedagogy. And you and Steve Masick co-manage and coordinate the project's campus affiliates program. So let's get to the heart of that. Let's get to the heart of why is this necessary? Carl Jensen started this 45 years ago, and it's obviously an issue of significance and importance maybe now more than it even was because we have so many different places. You mentioned news inflation. There's so much noise, and we've got to cut through it. Can Andy, you, and then Steve maybe talk a little bit about the importance of the critical media literacy type curriculum around news literacy with the the validated independent news assignment and talk about the significance of working with uh, students and sort of a next generation of intrepid independent journalists?
0: News is powerful because it sets an agenda for what we think about as being important and what we talk about as matters of public interest. News is agenda setting, and that's the form of power that news has. That's the form of power that corporate news outlets attempt to exert on us. We need to understand that. That's part of a critical media literacy that takes as its beginning point basic media literacy so we're talking about an umbrella term that covers things like not only news but also information and digital literacy platform literacy how algorithms work for instance in a digital age Um, but the critical input when we talk about critical media literacy is that we're doing all those things the ability to access analyze and evaluate and create media in a variety of forms But when we do critical media literacy, we're doing it with an orientation to power. So we're asking questions when we're working with students, we're asking questions like who created this message? What technologies were used to bring it to our attention? How might people different than me understand and interpret that message? The basic premise that's near and dear to me as a sociologist is that all media messages are in some sense constructed. And so what we're trying to do is to pick apart the factors that shaped the construction of whatever the media message is. In the case of Project Censor, the focus is on news messages, news content. And so we work with students at campuses from across the country every year. And maybe at that point, I'll turn it over to Steve to say more.
2: Yeah. And so I'll just say a little bit about what instructors, professors at these campus affiliate campuses do to involve students in the work of Project Censors. So every one of these campuses, students engage in the validated independent news exercise where they are assigned either as an extra credit assignment or as a graded assignment in some class in a variety of different disciplines that includes sociology, journalism, media studies, education, et cetera. They're assigned to find a story that is significant using kind of standard news values, right? It's got impact, it's recent, it has all of the elements of a good news story. Um, it's factually based. It's based on credible information and credible sources. It's current. It's up to date, etc. And they have to find a story that's been published in an independent or alternative news outlet that has not received significant coverage by the corporate news media. So that requires them to do a couple of things. So first of all, they have to kind of become familiar with the reporting, the excellent reporting that's being done by a variety of different independent and alternative news media, most of them online, and then find a story that they find interesting that they think is important, has social impact, is factually accurate, well-grounded, well-researched. And then they have to go and use various kinds of databases to try to figure out whether or not that story has received significant attention from the corporate news media, from media like NBC, CBS, CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post. And so it's a great exercise for the students in doing research and doing research on news stories. And then when they find a story that meets our criteria, for an undercover story, that is, it's significant, it's fact-based, it's been published at least by one outlet somewhere, and has not received significant attention, then they write it up, and in their write-up, they summarize the central points of the story, the main facts of the story, and then also they provide an overview of what, if any, corporate news coverage that story has received. They submit it to Project Censored, and then Project Censored conducts their own research on that story, vets it. If we find that it meets our standards, it then gets published on our website as a validated and independent news story. And then at the end of every year's news cycle, the stories that have been published on the website that met the criteria are put on a ballot, and then all of the students vote on it, the faculty involved vote, staff a Project Censored vote, and then it's submitted to our international panel of judges, many of whom are journalists, some of whom are journalism and media studies educators. They then vote on the stories and then rank them in order of importance, and that's how we come up with the top 25 list every year.
1: We're speaking with Steve Masick and Andy Lee Roth. They compiled and edited the top censored stories in the new books, Project Censored State of the Free Press 2022. These stories are available freely online at projectcensored.org. And we're going to continue and conclude our conversation with Steve Masick and Andy Lee Roth after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On the Project Censored Show today, we're looking at the latest annual release of Project Censored, That's the State of the Free Press 2022. We're talking with Steve Masick and Andy Lee Roth. They're co-coordinators of the project's uh, campus affiliates program. Andy Lee Roth is the associate director of Project Censored. Steve Masick helps compile the stories each year. Also, Steve Masick contributes to what we call the deja vu chapter. What's happened to previous stories? And that's what we're going to focus on a little bit now. We're going to, of course, round out with a little bit more on our curriculum and uh, media literacy education talk about how people can get involved if they're interested. And again, all this information that we're talking about today, including lists of independent alternative news sources, how to take Project Censored into the classroom, this is all available for free online at projectcensored.org. Steve Masick, long time ago, Carl Jensen, and then the subsequent director of the project, Peter Phillips. They were curious as to what would happen to previous censored news stories. And we mentioned this earlier in our conversation. We talked about stories that maybe languish in obscurity versus eventually, sometimes six, 12, 18 months, the corporate media sometimes gets around to picking up a story. And sometimes they do a good job doing it, but sometimes they frame it or distort it in ways that we mentioned previously. Now, the Deja Vu chapter specifically And as someone, one of my day job hats is historian. This is a very, very fascinating analytical chapter because it does go back and say, hey, what happened to that story from last year or 10 years ago or 40 years ago? And it really gives us a snapshot of the trajectory of censorship, the kinds of stories that are censored and so forth. So can we talk a little bit about the deja vu Process And and maybe you can give us an example or two. Again, another opportunity for students to research
2: and, and see how media work. Steve Masick. As you said, the aim of this deja vu chapter is to sort of study or trace the fate of a handful of the important stories that have ended up on previous year's top 25 lists. For this year, I worked with a group of students here at North Central, Shaley Voidle, Griffin Curran, and Rachel Schwannebeck to write the Deja Vu chapter that's in the book that was just published. And I'm not going to talk about all of those stories that we investigated, but I want to talk about a couple in particular. So one that we looked back at was a story that was number five in Censored 2012, which covered the 2011-2012 news cycle. This was a story about private prison companies funding anti-immigration legislation. Just to kind of boil it down to its essence, there are two very significant corporate owners and operators of private prisons. Core Civic, which was formerly known as Corrections Corporation of America, and GEO Group. And these two big private prison companies, the original story in 2012 underscored, were contributing a lot of money to political campaigns of people in Senate and Congress. And they were also expending millions of dollars a year on lobbying over immigration laws, because they had a material interest in seeing that more and more immigrants be detained, because many of the immigrants who ended up being detained by immigration officials would end up being housed in facilities that were operated by these private prison companies. And what the original story pointed out is that by 2013, detention of immigrants for longer than 10 months at a time earned these two corporations approximately $1 billion a year in federal funds. Okay, so moving on to the update, what the update found is that they've only escalated their lobbying and their political contributions to politicians who preside over and and pass legislation that directly impacts the, the corporate bottom line. Now, what the update points out is that at the very end of the Obama administration, the Justice Department announced that it was no longer going to be making contracts with private prison companies, but that actually only affected private prisons that held federal prisoners and prisoners that were being held by the U.S. Marshals Service. It didn't actually affect This announcement that was made at the end of the Obama administration didn't actually affect immigrants that were being detained by private prisons. And then, of course, when Donald Trump Came into office, he expended a huge amount of money on immigration control, something like four billion dollars worth, and a lot of it was directed to. And a lot of that money that was spent ended up going into the pocket of these two private prison companies, as OpenSecrets.org reported that ICE in 2018 during the pr- Trump administration signed contracts worth more than 450 million dollars with GEO and more than 200. 180 million dollars with CoreCivic so between those two close to 800 million dollars in contracts with just those two private prison companies alone in 2018 the update talks a little bit about what's happened with the Biden administration the Biden administration of course rolled back some of the most draconian anti-immigrant measures that were put in place by the Trump administration they lifted the so-called muslim ban biden halted construction on the wall but nothing really has been done about these contracts with private prisons so it's a fascinating update
1: yeah well indeed it is but steve may say quickly i wanted to cover one more of these and then we're going to go back to andy lee roth to close out our conversation today you've got a really great epigraph at the beginning of that chapter thomas griffith from time magazine that talks about journalism is in fact history on the run it's history written in time to be acted upon thereby not only recording events but at times influencing them journalism is also recording of history while the facts are not all in. Well, one of the other examples I wanted you to hit on is the update on one of the stories... Very recent story, actually, but the more updates on it, is the Black Identity Extremist story, kind of a redux from FBI's Poe and Pelpro, the counterintelligence program. And that, I'm not being hyperbolic. That's pretty
2: literal. Tell us about this. This was the number 10 story in Censored 2019. So from the 2018-2019 uh, cycle, uh, the story was FBI racially profiling, quote unquote, Black Identity Extremists who were activists fighting for rights for African-Americans, who were identified as terrorists. This categorization that was invented by the Trump-era FBI elicited a lot of backlash. There were congressional hearings about it. There was publicity about it, some publicity about it, not as much as really there should have been, And one of the things we discovered in the update is that some papers were released to the Young Turks, which is kind of progressive online news organization that revealed that the FBI was conducting what they call assessments on these Black identity extremist groups. They can begin an assessment even if they don't think that the group is involved in criminal activity, and they can start gathering information about the group using undercover officers, even if that group is only engaged in First Amendment-protected political speech, which is sort of alarming. The FBI did change that designation, Black Identity Extremists. They changed the designation from the offensive Black Identity Extremists. But one of the things that was revealed in the investigation into their decision to label these people Black identity extremists is that FBI had introduced a new program called iron fist to mitigate the imagined threat of black identity extremists.
1: And Steve, that term that that was replaced, the term was racially motivated, violent extremism.
2: Racially motivated, violent extremists, which was a catch-all term, not just for black identity extremists, but for so-called white supremacist groups.
1: So Steve, that's the deja vu chapter in State of the Free Press. And again, another opportunity for students to learn about the state of our so-called free press and to learn about how stories are covered or not or framed or disappeared down the memory hole, or do they emerge, and does the corporate press rise to the occasion to actually tell the public what's really going on? And so, Andy Lee Roth, let's go back to you to round out our conversation today about the state of the free press and about the importance of journalism and journalistic ethics in particular.
0: Thanks, Mickey. I'll, uh, I'll round us out by taking us back to the foreword of State of the Free Press 2022, which we are so fortunate to have written by Danielle McLean, who's a senior editor at Smart Cities Dive, which provides in-depth journalism of the most impactful stories shaping cities and municipalities. Danielle has also been a leader in the Society of Professional Journalists, first as the chairperson of SPJ's Freedom of Information Committee, and now as the chair of the SPJ's Ethics Committee. And in Danielle's forward to State of the Free Press 2022, she writes, Sadly, too many of the media's scarce resources are devoted to amplifying the voices of the country's most powerful government officials and corporate executives, uncritically publicizing their opinions and short-term goals, instead of exploring the collective impacts that their decisions might have on society and its most vulnerable members. This needs to change. Our industry needs to change. Continuing, we need to stop chasing ratings and meaningless clickbait headlines stop treating politics like celebrity gossip and elections like popularity polls demand change from the corporate boards and head funds. That run news outlets without caring about the free press and turn our focus towards the kind of journalism that our society deserves. We need more of the kind of journalism you'll find in this book Danielle McLean writes in the foreword to State of the Free Press 2022. And I would put that much of what Danielle says is what students who work with the project are getting a hands-on experience of engaging in themselves, not just as an assignment in their classroom, but as something where they can be impactful through publication of their stories and research on the project's website, which anyone can go to, projectcensored.org and also in publication of the annual Censored Yearbook, which contains everything we've talked about this hour and
1: much, much more. Steve Masick, Andy Lee Roth, thank you not only for the fantastic work that you're doing in maintenance of a free press, but also educating another generation of what we hope to be vibrant and intrepid young journalists moving forward. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thanks so much, Andy. Thank you. Thank you, Mickey.
0: conditions not free market propaganda and politicians because they own my special interest
1: you've been listening to the project censored show established in 2010 by myself along with peter phillips i'm the executive producer mickey huff of this program also the host anthony fest our senior producer thanks to you our listeners for tuning in we'll see you next time